0: Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, and this week we're going to talk about the rivalry between Turkey and the United Arab Emirates and why it matters to Europe. To help us make sense of this, I am thrilled to have an all-star cast. First up is Asla Aydin Tasbash, who is ECFR's resident Turkey expert, speaking from Istanbul. Second up, we have Cinzia Bianco, who is a visiting fellow at ECFR working on the Arabian Peninsula and Gulf region. The two of them have just written a fascinating brief called Useful Enemies, how the Turkey-UAE rivalry is remaking the Middle East. And that title also explains why we have our third guest, Julian Barnes-Dacey, who is Director of our Middle Eastern North Africa Programme, as well as a Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR. Thank you all very much for joining. So despite their huge asymmetry in their size, population and military prowess, Turkey and the United Arab Emirates are engaged in a decade-long rivalry. And their emergence as as key players is part of a a remaking of the Middle East. We've spoken a lot in previous podcasts about the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Israel um, is another non-Arab power that is uh, playing a a very, very important role. But this particular relationship is something which is maybe under-researched and is becoming an increasingly important part of the, the dynamics of the region. Asler and Cintia as I said, wrote this paper on the, on the rivalry. So maybe we go to you first, Asler, because given that Turkey is the, the bigger part of this uh, dyad, why don't you tell us a bit more about why you think this rivalry is important and where it comes from?
1: Well, Mark, we've been looking into various conflicts in the region that matter also to Europe, including Libya and Syria and Eastern Mediterranean. We spent a good deal of time with the MENA team at ECFR looking into the dynamics of Eastern Mediterranean conflict that involved Turkey, of course, and in each and every one of these issues, each and every one of these theaters, so to speak, you had Turkey and UAE behind the scenes as the key drivers of the conflict. It's more obvious in Libya, of course, but certainly there in Syria, in Egypt and Eastern Mediterranean. And uh, while there's been this talk of Turkey, UAE, you know, sort of being on the opposite sides, when we started looking into that, we realized that the extent, the, the pervasive nature of this rivalry was essentially something that seeped into European politics. So this may be the first time, historically speaking, that a Middle East conflict, is actually being instrumentalized in Europe, uh, leading to divisions among European member states. And so we were interested, alarmed, and wanted to do a deep dive, but also talking about the domestic drivers in both of these countries of this conflict. It's not just that they support opposing sides, but their self-perceptions, their narratives, their domestic narratives rests on this opposition at home for Turkey, for Erdogan, and certainly for UAE. And one more, their global positioning, what the arguments they're using in Brussels, in Washington, among lobbyists, in international media, is all about this opposition and how they, in the case of Turkey, particularly for domestic audiences, positions itself as a more democratic alternative to Gulf monarchies. And in the case of UAE, there's been a great deal of effort in lobbying across Europe and Washington and in the Middle East to position this conflict as the voice of moderate versus Islamists. So I think we both realize that this is here to stay. It's an important driver in in the Middle East, almost reshaping the Middle East, but not just that, that there was this ideological component or seemingly ideological component, because we're questioning that, in a sense, reassured the longevity of this feud,
0: so Julian, I want to come to you soon to talk about why this matters to Europe and what core interests are impacted by it. And, and I'd also like to start unpacking it. But maybe we should look at the other side of the dyad first. Chinzia, can you talk a bit more about from the kind of UAE perspective, you trace the rivalry back to the Arab uprisings of, of 2011. Can you help us understand a bit more how it started in in the minds of the Emirates?
2: Certainly. I mean, for the UAE, the Arab uprisings were really a momentous occasion, as for many other players in the Arab world. But basically, it was a pervasive feeling of the old order crumbling and endless possibilities for a new order uh, in the region. Uh, they had their own vision for the political future of the Middle East and North Africa region, which was diametrically opposed to that of Turkey and of Qatar, which uh, is, has been identified in Abu Dhabi from day one as the other uh, silent, but crucial partner for Turkey and uh, so-called uh, pro-Islamist front that was trying to exploit, in Abu Dhabi's reading, the vacuum of power created by the Arab uprisings to uh, empower. Power, um, Islamist movements in all of the different countries in the region where, where there was such political space. And for the UAE, that was extremely problematic for two reasons. First, it was problematic also from a domestic point of view, because the UAE experienced very limited, close to uh, zero dissent during the Arab uprisings, but they did experience some And in particular, that very little dissent was perceived as being particularly tricky and dangerous from Abu Dhabi's point of view, because it was focused uh, in areas that were a little bit outside the the central control, and uh, it was in a way sponsored by one of the seven uh, ruling families of the Emirates. And so these sort of high level connections of these very small and pretty inconsequential Islamist movement in the UAE has, however, magnified the perception of the threat in Abu Dhabi's view. So let's say from 2011 to 2013-14, until the sort of crackdown from Abu Dhabi was, let's say, completed or really gave a sense of of security to the, the UAE rulers, the Islamist threat also had a very clear domestic component. From 2013 onwards and until this very day, it was about the regional order. And I mean, for me, that is like the most interesting phase because we see a tiny country that's actually a federation of seven very small emirates that really steps up and has the ambition to reshape the order of the Middle East in its own vision and sort of devises a strategy that helps them leverage their own resources and capabilities and assets, first and foremost financial resources, of course, but also their own personal networks, and devises this strategy, which we we call in the the paper a co-piloting strategy, which is basically joining forces with other global powers like the U.S. or like Russia or upper middle powers like France to try and together project uh, influence against the islamist front
0: julian why don't you now tell us why europeans should care about this how are the eu's core interests impacted by the rivalry to what extent have europeans imported this conflict <laughs> into their own strategies towards the regional lack of strategies
3: sure i mean i think Asla and, and Cintzia have already touched on this quite well, but but there are probably two dimensions here. One is what Cintzia was just talking about, which is that uh, this rivalry is, is, is now one of the driving forces of instability right across the region. And you know, for so long we've talked about the Iran Saudi, the Iran Gulf rivalry. Whereas to in, in, in many respects, the one that is most impacting direct Europe interests is is this kind of Turkey Gulf rivalry that's been playing out in countries like Egypt, Libya, uh, Syria and elsewhere. But I think secondly, and more importantly, is the point that As was making, that that really this is a rivalry that has been imported into into the European space and has been imported into an an ongoing European conflict, been playing out in the East Med. Effectively, the the Turkey-Emirati rivalry has become an element of the European-Turkish rivalry that has been intensifying over recent years. And for a number of European states, the Emirates have come to be seen as an ally in their ongoing confrontation with with Turkey that plays out Across the Mediterranean and Libya. So you have a number of countries like Greece, Cyprus, France that have effectively drawn quite close to, to the Emirates in this approach to, to try and contain and push back against Turkey. You've seen it in how European states have positioned themselves in the Libya conflict. A number of states um, allying with with the kind of Emirati-backed General Haftar in, in the east of the country, who's been fighting a, a Turkish-backed government, a UN-backed government in, in Tripoli. You see it in me- Mediterranean maneuverings. The Emirates has Join the East Med Gas Forum, which is a forum of a number of Mediterranean states and European states that that specifically excludes Turkey to, to try and again contain Turkey. So really, this is now playing out within the Eastern Mediterranean it's a, a direct function of of europe's relationship with Turkey it's clearly I- impacting on um, europe's ability to to shape a, a strategic relationship there and is as athlete says causing divisions within the European space. We have more and more military and security relationships emerging between some of these uh southern European states and the emirates so it, it it's playing out as an increasingly important dimension of this element of 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 europe's struggle with Turkey
0: obviously there are kind of other players involved in the region as well, not least the US. Chintia, do you want to talk about how the US plays into this? Because it obviously has close but complicated relationship with Turkey. Well, less close at the moment, maybe, than it has been uh, at its peak, but also has obviously a very, very deep relationship with the UAE.
2: Precisely. Yeah, certainly the US plays a role here that is quite uh, uh, significant. And of course, the clearest sort of, difference is between the administration of Donald Trump and the administration of Joe Biden. And although in its very early days, uh, the Biden administration is already having some sort of effect, which I will now elaborate upon. Let's go back to Donald Trump, because it was, I think, the story of the rise of the UAE as a regional player um, had a, a booster, an, a very significant booster in the four years that saw Donald Trump in the White House. The UAE has one of the strongest positions in Washington, D.C., not only among Arab countries, arguably. They have very strong high-level connections and uh, that tapped directly into the White House uh, where, when Trump was there. Basically, that translated into a blank check in so many different theatres, first and foremost in Libya, for the UAE to pursue their own uh, strategies, sort of with, with the implied uh, sort of understanding that the UAE wouldn't cross U.S. interests. That is debatable because, of course, a few months ago, it has come to light that uh, it has been officially come to light uh, through a Pentagon reports that the UAE has been uh, very, very closely cooperating with the Wagner Group in uh, Libya. And of that's a
0: Russian private military company.
2: Yes. So, of course, that uh, empowers Russia and directly undermines, arguably, uh, the US interests in Libya. However, there was this sort of uh, very close relationship with Trump and that emboldened the UAE to um, really be more, more and more assertive. Now, you know, four years later, uh, we have Joe Biden in the White House, and we entered into a different period that we call the Biden moment. But it's really about a strategic pause, especially from the UAE's point of view, given that they are arguably overexposed and very uh, assertive and proactive in so many different regional theatres, from the Maghreb to uh, the Levant to the Horn of Africa and the Eastern Mediterranean, there is, you know, the sense that there should be a repositioning, there should be a strategic pause, there should be an emphasis on finding, playing a diplomatic role and a mediation role where possible to sort of uh, also change that problematic image that they had developed Uh, especially among certain groups within the Democratic Party in the United States. But what we also really like to stress in the paper is that both from the Turkish point of view and from the UAE point of view, this should be really read as a strategic pause for the, for the time being. So it remains vulnerable. Nothing has changed in the fundamental differences that these two powers have over the future of the Middle East and North Africa. So to really solidify this attempted detente or you know, pro forma detente that we're, we're witnessing, uh, it would require more sort of political investment from interested global powers, especially the Europeans, who do have an interest in containing that.
0: So obviously, we want to look at some of the practical things we can do. But maybe before we do that, it might be worth just dwelling a bit more on some of these theatres that you talked about. What's happening in Syria, what's happening in Libya, what's happening in in maritime geopolitics. Julian, do you want to start off maybe with Syria, given that that's a theatre that you've been uh, studying very, very closely um, for many years now?
3: Sure. I mean, Syria isn't the the kind of the the headline conflict theatre for these two countries, but you've obviously had quite significant Turkish intervention in Syria over recent years. They now control a swathe of territory across the country across the north of the country. And this has essentially provoked an Emirati response in two ways. I think, one, they have offered to provide assistance to to the Kurds in in the northeast of the country, working to the Americans, providing stabilization assistance, seeing the Kurds as a vehicle to to contain Turkish influence. But I think probably more notably, you've seen a recent move by the Emirati leadership to to re-engage Bashar al-Assad and really try and lead an effort across the broader Arab world to, to bring him back in from the cold. And again, this represents a move in line with their kind of wider regional vision, which is that you need to to strengthen the so-called self-proclaimed kind of authoritarian, uh, secular strongmen at the center who can contain the rise and push back against the rise of of Islamist groups affiliated with Turkey. So in Syria, there's a sense that that Assad is actually the vehicle through which the Emiratis can support Syrian and regional stability in line with their interests. This is not just about Iran, as, as, as many countries See, in, in many respects, the Emirates now view Turkey as the main challenge and threat via Syria. So, so you've seen that re-engagement there, but it's not really a hot conflict as, as we're seeing elsewhere in the region like we've seen, or at least up until recently, we were seeing in Libya and where it's played out quite acutely in, in Qatar as well.
0: Asa, do you want to talk a bit about the Libya issue? You mentioned it earlier on, but is there anything more that you'd like to add on that, given that's one of the central places that you and other colleagues have been working on in the East Med?
1: Well, Turkey and UAE have moved into this country, no doubt due to a power vacuum of sorts, absence of European diplomacy. But Turkey and UAE have moved into this country and became the driving forces on the opposite sides of the war. And uh, what was uh, striking, of course, is that Libya is right on the periphery of Europe, but you had the conflict driven by external actors and without much European involvement until the Berlin process. So one of the things we talk about is how you need holding the Berlin process. One of the things we talk about is how you need European-led or UN-led political processes instead of being bystanders for Europeans, instead of remaining as bystanders as this feud reshapes Europe's periphery. Uh, Another recommendation that we've come up with is insulate Europe-Turkey relations from this rivalry. Do not let it be hostage to, uh, and this is particularly pertinent when it comes to East Med, but do not let it be hostage to a regional rivalry Turkey and Europe uh, have a whole host of issues and problems, but they're overlapping interests, of course, such as migration, such as trade. You know, we are really calling on Europeans not to look like they're picking sides, not to let UAE be the protector of European interests in East Med. If that is to happen, it should be a European-led process and rejected sort of the toxic influence of this feud on formulating policies regarding Turkey. Uh, do your own, you know, thinking and your own uh, policy recommendations in line with European strategic autonomy when it comes to your overall framework with Turkey, as opposed to being led by UAE and just sort of being uh, charmed by the supposed ideological component of this conflict. It's really not in European interest to be sucked into this vortex. I think, I mean,
3: I think, j- just a second that. I think that just to, to affirm, you know, clearly... Europe has issues with Turkey and other players in in the region, but it's only going to get so much more complicated to resolve those issues if it comes wrapped up in a Middle Eastern conflict at the same time. So this idea of saying, okay, well, this is Europe's problem with Turkey. Let's deal with that. But the minute you kind of throw the Emirati conflict into the same mix, these problems become so much more intractable. So I think that the concern that we have is that a number of European states are allying with them, themselves with the Emirates Emirates to, mean, to combat the
0: Turkey. It's a number of European states code for France?
3: No, it's, it's Cyprus, it's Greece, you know, those are, are, are most kind of dug in against Turkey. So there's a short-term sense from, from these capitals that the, the Emirates helps kind of affirm their position. But our concern is that the, the medium to longer-term result is actually going to make it so much
0: more complicated for these countries to, to, to address their, their issues with Turkey. And how much leverage do you think we can have over this conflict anyway?
1: We're not necessarily calling for uh, Europe to reconcile these two powers. We are actually uh, suggesting ways Europe can insulate itself from this conflict.
0: So, what, uh, Cintia, do you want to mention some of the concrete ways that Europeans can insulate themselves other than, first of all, as, as Julian and Asla have already said, not taking sides and, and trying not to get involved?
2: Yeah, um, and also to go back to your question about how much leverage do Europeans have? And I think that this is a point that uh, we've been trying to make in different publications, especially vis-a-vis the Gulf and Gulf monarchies. Um, European leverage really must uh, come under a European umbrella. So this bilateral engagement uh, that a number of European countries such as Greece and Cyprus have with uh, the UAE, which has started as a very intense diplomatic exchange, has morphed into talks of, you know, joint investments and uh, economic projects to then develop into actual defense treaties, is a format that makes us worry because uh, at the bilateral level, experience tells us that European countries do not actually have leverage over Gulf monarchies. And, um, you know, it might si- sound strange given that, you know, by all traditional geopolitical metrics, a country like the UAE is not actually a um, transformative power, but in all actuality, as power becomes from hard power to, uh, however you want to call it, soft power, smart power, the the fact of the matter is that the bilateral level, Europeans do not have that leverage vis-a-vis the UAE. On the contrary, intra-European divisions have been exploited in the past by a number of regional players to sort of try and steer uh, the European positions closer to regional positions. So, That is just a second what both uh, Julian and Asli said. What it means in practice is when you think about insulating the Turkey-UAE rivalry from European-Turkey relations and European-UAE relations, because by the way, we also advocate for the fact that Europeans should have closer relations to uh, the UAE. It, it is the most sensible thing to do. However, it shouldn't come as a part of some other Euro- very European issues, such as uh, the conflict with Turkey. So in practice, uh, the uae european relations especially with greece uh, cyprus france and especially when you know it's directly about the eastern mediterranean such as the philia forum established by greece including all actors all regional actors and a number of european actors that are clearly anti turkish so these relations should really refrain from going into defence and security matters. All of these military drills, uh, all of these defence partnerships, they are very, very problematic. They are a step further from energy relations, infrastructural projects, joint projects, and why not uh, increased diplomatic engagement? So we, I, I think, you know, we sort of draw the line there.
0: Okay. Well, it sounds like this rivalry, which has already been ongoing for at least a decade, is going to carry on uh, stepping up in the future. And I'm sure we'll come back to it again many times. But it's been great to, to talk through the different aspects of it and try and tease them out with you over the last period of time. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Julian, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? So
3: I am reading a novel, The Sympathizer. It won the, the, the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago. It's um, written by a Vietnamese author, I believe, Viet or something i'm sure my my, my my reading of that is very bad but it's basically the story of kind of the end of, of the vietnam war and, and the number of vietnamese people who basically flee to los angeles and, and settle there and you kind of see both the acclimatization to to, to like in the u.s but also kind of intra-vietnamese political feuding and rivalries and spying playing out so i'm just getting into it but it's um taking me away from the middle east i'll tell you that
0: much okay what about you cinzia
2: I am rereading a book called D- Desert Kingdoms to Global Powers by Rory Miller, which I find is a, a very enjoyable book To that narrates in a lively, in a lively way the, the rise of the Gulf monarchies from desert kingdoms to global powers or at least regional powers.
0: Great. And what about you, Asla?
1: I'm reading The Orientalist which is the life of Esad Bey or Leo Lissenbaum, who was a well-known Orientalist in the Weimar Republic long before Edward Said came about and redefined the term, or in negative terms. But uh, he is the author of Ali Annino, a legendary love story, an enduring novel that is still in the bookshelves. But he's a very interesting figure. The book is by Tom Rees. It's quite a page turner. But I had no, I had not realized that Assad Bey, he had converted to Islam and taken the name Assad Bey. And I had no knowledge that he was so popular. He was well-known across Europe. His books were translated. And it so happened that Assad Bey was a Jew, a Jew from Baku originally. We also read about his escape from the Russian Revolution. He ended up having to gradually leave Germany and uh, with the rise of anti-Semitism, uh, moving to the United States, moving to then uh, back to Austria. And the story is fascinating.
0: Wow. So I um, have just started a book by one of our council members, Robert Cooper called the ambassadors thinking about diplomacy from Machiavelli to modern times. And um I think that if you listen carefully, you'll hear him on the the podcast over the next couple of weeks, um, because I I think there's a lot to talk about in that book. Anyway, it's been wonderful going through all of these new rivalries which are remaking the Middle East. If you've enjoyed listening to it, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours. We'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at ecfr.com. EU slash podcasts. But for now, from Asla Aydin Tashbash, Cintia Bianco, Julian Barnes Daisy, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Marlene Riedle.